This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and the Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. It's almost election day. On Tuesday, May 21st, Pennsylvania voters who are registered with one of the two major parties will go to the polls to choose their nominees for the general election in November. It's a so-called off-year when voters are choosing candidates for local and judicial offices. But let's be frank, there is no such thing as an off-year when it comes to who we elect to public office. Our local officials have as much or maybe even more impact on our lives as state and federal electeds. Which brings us to our two guests for episode 24. Terrell Thomas is the senior field organizer for ACLUPA's Campaign for Smart Justice, and is based in our Pittsburgh office. Taylor Pendergrass is a senior campaign strategist for National ACLU. And Terrell and Taylor joined me for a conversation about the impact of the county district attorney on the criminal justice system. Taylor explains why the DA is the most powerful person in the criminal justice system. And Terrell brings us up to speed on what's happening in Allegheny County, where there is a competitive race for district attorney in the Democratic primary. As you prepare for the primary election, I encourage you to check out our webpage, aclupa.org slash voting rights. At that page, you'll find helpful information about the right to vote, including what to do if your right is being stymied. Also, with most counties in Pennsylvania voting for their DA this year, check out knowyourdanpa.org. That's an ACLUPA website with lots of helpful information about the district attorneys in the Commonwealth. Before we get to the discussion with Terrell and Taylor, though, I want to let you know that we're going to host our first live podcast. The live pod will be part of the festivities at ACLU 100, an interactive exhibit celebrating the ACLU centennial. ACLU 100 will be in Philadelphia on May 22nd and 23rd at the 23rd Street Armory, which is at 22 South 23rd Street. The live podcast will be the evening of May 23rd at 6.30 as part of a happy hour with our Philly Chapter's Young Leadership Outreach Team. During the program, we'll take questions about the hottest civil liberties issues from the audience, and if you can't be there in person, you can still participate. Submit your own questions to speakingfreely at aclupa.org, and we might read your question during the forum. You can learn more about ACLU 100's Philadelphia stop at aclu100.org slash Philadelphia. All right, let's hear from Terrell and Taylor. This conversation was recorded on May 1st. Taylor and Terrell, thank you both for joining me today and the chance to talk about prosecutor accountability. Taylor, I want to start with you. We say repeatedly here at the ACLU that a district attorney is the most powerful person in the criminal justice system. Why is that? That's a great question. You know, at the Campaign for Smart Justice, which is our national campaign to reduce jail and prison populations by 50%, we've identified prosecutors and prosecutorial reform as one of our top priorities because of the almost unilateral discretion and power that prosecutors have in the criminal legal system. So, for example, the prosecutor is the person who will decide whether to charge someone with a crime at all or whether to not charge them or give them a second chance or send them to diversion. Uh, and that decision is not subjected to any oversight 
from any other person other than the prosecutor. Prosecutors have the same type of power in deciding whether or not to lock someone up in jail while they're awaiting their day in court. They have the same type of power when they decide what charges to bring, how severe those charges will be, and what the ultimate uh, penalties will be, including prison sentences. And they really have um, their, their most tremendous and kind of extraordinary power, and one that's a little bit hidden from public view, is that prosecutors, nine times out of ten, are the only people deciding how long someone is going to go to prison for a crime. Ninety-seven percent of cases are resolved by a plea bargain, which is just an agreement between the district attorney and the person who's charged with the crime. The judge has very little Um, if any, oversight over that plea bargain. There's no jury involved. It's just the prosecutor and the prosecutor alone who's making that decision. So really from the start of the the process, um, after someone is arrested or charged with a crime, all the way through the back end, it's really the prosecutor who is making all of those decisions with very little oversight and almost no other accountability. So that's why we say that the prosecutor is is the most powerful person in the criminal legal system. And looking at that through the other end of the telescope, what is true is that prosecutors have so much power and so much discretion that if they wanted to end mass incarceration tomorrow, they really could do that voluntarily just by making changes in their practices and their policies within their office without the need for any other legal change or legislative change. So Prosecutors for a very long time have been exercising this tremendous power in a way that has created and fueled mass incarceration, but they also have the potential to change that around and exercise that power in a way that would dramatically reduce the number of people that we incarcerate, that would attack racism and racial disparities in the criminal legal system, and that would shrink the overall criminal justice footprint in our communities. Well, and with all that in mind, the ACLU has great ambitions to take on prosecutor accountability as a priority initiative, and ambition makes it sound like it's in the future, but we've also done some work uh, in the past over the last few years. Um, How has that played out across the country? There have been some high-profile changes in prosecutors' offices, including in Philadelphia. That's right. We have a national approach, um, and we're in the third year of our plan to really put a spotlight and focus on prosecutorial reform. And there are kind of a few different ways in which we've been approaching that work. The the one that you just mentioned is a very big part of our plan, which is really focusing on voter education and prosecutor elections. Historically, about 85% of prosecutors run unopposed, and voters know very little about the power that their local prosecutor has over their community and traditionally don't really turn out in those elections to vote. So a big part of our project has been educating our members and supporters and impacted communities to let them know about this very important position and to make sure that their voice is heard at the ballot box um, in DA elections. And we have seen really uh, extraordinary change in just the last couple of years in terms of the type of people who are running for these offices, which traditionally might have just included, um, you know, deputy attorney, um, district attorneys who who were kind of ascending into the position, and now is including uh, a far wider and much more diverse array of candidates from public defenders to civil rights attorneys um, to people 
who have never had any prosecutorial experience at all. We're seeing turnout in these elections go up dramatically in many cases. Uh, and we're seeing, you know, both challengers who are elected and incumbents who are feeling um, the public pressure to be accountable to their constituents implementing policies that are you know, changing bail practices that are reducing harsh sentences that are making a difference in lowering uh, prison and jail populations. We're still in in the early days of that project, to be sure, but I think the progress that we've seen so far in the electoral context across the country and in places like Philadelphia specifically is is really encouraging. In addition to that electoral work, we've also been focused on legislative change um, and really trying to change the the ways that prosecutors are governed. Um, our first effort uh, in that regard launched this year with a transparency campaign, which is aimed at statewide legislation that would require every prosecutor in the state to make their policies public and to collect and publish data about their practices. One of the biggest difficulties um, in reforming prosecutorial practices is that these offices have essentially been black boxes for a very long time. We know very little about what prosecutors are doing or the outcomes that they're producing and whether anything that they're doing is actually making communities safer. So we see uh, transparency as a big part of the puzzle in terms of the overall um, reform package. And we've seen some really exciting movement on that legislation in places like Connecticut and Oregon and Texas and Delaware. And we're hoping that in subsequent years, we'll see more and more states embracing that and and implementing um, that legislation. And then finally, part of our national project has really been to make sure that prosecutors are being held accountable in court for systemic constitutional violations in the same way that the ACLU has long been involved in that type of litigation when it comes to policing or when it comes to jails and prisons. We have a smart justice litigation team um, that includes two attorneys who are dedicated full-time to um, bringing lawsuits against prosecutors' offices who are engaged in widespread patterns of abuse. And that's another piece of the puzzle um, in the over all reform picture for us is kind of piercing this veil of impunity that prosecutors have enjoyed for a long time and making sure that uh, prosecutors understand they will be held accountable if they violate people's constitutional rights and um, hopefully spurring, you know, additional change in office practices and culture because of of that um, threat of accountability. So really working across the electoral, legislative, and litigation spheres is kind of our um, combined approach here. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of early but exciting changes in a lot of different places, including in Pennsylvania. So, Terrell, let's talk about Allegheny County. Uh, A majority of the counties in Pennsylvania have DA elections this year. Allegheny County is one of them. And there is a competitive primary in the Democratic Party um, between Stephen Zappala, the incumbent, and his challenger, Teron Jenkins. As all three of us know, but it's worth repeating, the ACLU does not endorse candidates for office. Our work as it relates to electoral campaigns is to be sure that civil liberties are being discussed and pushed in the campaigns. So Terrell, you're a Pittsburgh native. You've been doing community work for years. What are the big issues that people are thinking about and talking about as it relates to the DA race in Allegheny County? So we have the benefit of seeing some of the work that's been taking place in Philadelphia. And so people really want a district attorney that's going to be accountable to the community. Um, they understand it is, a, it, it is a black box. They don't have the demographics, the statistics, any of the, the numbers that are, you know, people who are being prosecuted for what crimes, uh, how long they're being arrested, where they've been sentenced to, and the nature of their offenses. So people would like to, would like to have that data. Um, 
Yeah. So that's that's one of the major issues. Uh, as you know, we've had a, um, a tragedy here with the Antoine Rose uh, murder. So people are looking to the use of force law and they're looking to see how the DA's office plays in a part of that um, as well. And if he'll be an advocate uh, for reform and some of these different laws and, and use his power to make change here. I wanted to ask you about the Antoine Rose case. As our listeners may know, um, Antoine Rose is a teenager who was shot and killed by a police officer last summer in the borough of East Pittsburgh in Allegheny County. Um, the officer was charged with homicide um, and then acquitted at trial. How big of a shadow, Terrell, do you think that case um, presents over the DA election? I think it has a, it has a big shadow over it. People are, are not happy with the way the criminal legal system is here in Allegheny County. The, the numbers are astonishing. You know, we make up 13 percent of the population, but, uh, you know, we, we overpopulate the jails. If the communities are suffering and, and it's time for change. And so when you see that people who are being uh, murdered and you put your faith into the le criminal legal system and, and it looks as if it lets you down, people are looking for change. Um, and then you look around the country and you see so many different places are actually pro uh, moving forward with progressive policies, uh, litigations. Um, and legislative things like that, that are changing the way people are being treated. And we want it here in Allegheny County. And so I think the time is actually now, regardless of whoever is in office, whether it be Zapala or, or, or Jenkins, to, to work with their, you know, the people who are electing their constituents to, to bring that, that, you know, that smart justice ideal here to Allegheny County. And when you said 13 percent, you mean that the the black population of Allegheny County is 13 um, yes, percent. But yes, the, the, the population of the jail, the county jail is 49 percent African-American, I believe. Yes, it's around 50 percent. Those are the communities that are overpopulated, over police. And so, you know, you look at the school to prison pipeline. Those are the same the same communities that are people who are actually being uh, where Antoine Rose came from, uh, those schools and things like that. And so people are looking for change. And that's where uh, what they're fighting for. Yeah, it's noteworthy that we're, we are recording this on May 1st. Yesterday, April 30th, there was a huge rally in the state capitol, driven largely by folks from Allegheny County, as far as I could tell, um, calling for changes to the use of force law. Um, let's pivot out of elections and talk about what DA accountability looks like after an election. Uh, what does it mean to the two of you when we say we have to treat DAs like the elected officials that they are? Taylor, why don't you start? Sure. I, you know, I think that kind of very consistent with what we see in the electoral context, which is DAs often run unopposed. There's no attention paid to these offices um, during election time. The lack of attention and public accountability is even more severe in between elections. DAs are not used to having constituents show up at their door. Um, they often don't hold town halls or otherwise are not in relationship to the community in a way that they absolutely should be given the impact that they have in these neighborhoods. And also just the fact that they're a locally elected official that should be directly accountable to their constituents in, in the counties that they serve. That historically has not been the case. And that's another area I think we're seeing a lot of exciting change. You know, in cases where district attorneys have run on a reform platform um, and recognized this problem, they've often been proactive in setting up community advisory boards that they meet with once a month in order to make sure that their priorities are aligned with the community and that they're hearing community concerns. They've set up um, storefront offices in some of the most heavily impacted neighborhoods. They've made an effort to be much more responsive uh, to community members. In places where district attorneys have not embraced that, you know, we've seen a lot of very exciting 
activism and, and grassroots advocacy from community members, you know, demanding that their district attorney be more responsive to their needs and concerns and showing up at places that the DA shows up, you know, making sure that they're at public events and really putting a spotlight on the DA's unreachability. Um, and I think over the next few years, what we will see and what we've already seen in some places where this has been happening for a little bit longer is that 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 connection to the community, that accountability to local voters and local constituencies has a dramatic impact on the policies and practices of, of DA's offices. And, and we've seen them implementing, you know, policies declining to charge certain offenses where there are really stark racial disparities because they've heard and seen from those neighborhoods exactly what Terrell described, which is rampant over-policing, arresting mostly young black men at wildly disproportionate rates uh, to white men. And prosecutors have said in response, I'm not going to charge those offenses at all. The racial disparities and the policing practices are unconscionable. And I'm not going to put those uh, as the gatekeeper of the criminal legal system. I'm not going to let those changes in. So I think there's a direct through line between treating those DAs more like elected officials and uh, the policies and practices that they have in their offices. And Terrell, what about you? When you hear that that phrase, we have to treat DAs like the elected officials that they are. Um, from your perspective as an organizer, what do you think? Yeah, I'm in I'm in agreement with that. Uh, that's what the community wants. They want a person that they can hold accountable. They want to be held accountable as well. They want to work together to bring change here, uh, especially the person that sits in that seat as far as the district attorney's office. Uh, they understand the importance of it. You know, that's a that seat that hasn't been challenged here in a while. And the the you know the people are like I said before are already looking for change. And so when you look around the country and you see places where they're not prosecuting places for small I mean small, prosecuting people for a small amount of marijuana, and and here in Pittsburgh they're doing that. And but there's also laws that are saying that it's recreational or, or medicinal. That's that 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 causes uh, people in certain communities to feel like they're being attacked, especially when they're the ones who are being incarcerated for those offenses um, and other minor offenses as well. So, Terrell, what's your ambition for what the work will look like in Allegheny County after this election, whether the DA is Teron Jenkins or Stephen Zappala? How do you see the work moving forward to move the next DA towards smart justice? I have to sit down with a group of individuals, a coalition, and, and really talk about, you know, we're, we're bringing change here, you know, with an effective timeline that, that they could be held accountable to. I think that's the only way that you'll be able to bring, uh, you know, some progress here to the district attorneys, uh, to, that, to that seat, to the people in Allegheny County regardless of whoever it is. Taylor, I wanted to ask you about criminal justice reform broadly. Um, one question in particular, we, we there are some misconceptions out there about criminal justice reform. Uh, a lot of progressive activists get hung up on private prisons uh, here at ACLUPA. We get asked about private, private prisons repeatedly by the media when we do speaking engagements. There's also a lot of attention on the federal government, as you know, with coverage of legislation like the 1994 Crime Bill and the recently passed First Step Act. Can you talk a little bit about why and how the landscape is much bigger than these two relatively narrow areas of the criminal justice system? Sure. I think it's very understandable why people are often quite focused on private prisons, for example, as a particularly egregious and horrifying example of private companies making money and having a profit motive invested in 
uh, incarceration. But in truth, private prisons and the private prison industry represent only a very small fraction of the number of people who are incarcerated in the United States or in any given state. And I think across the country, um, maybe somewhere between like three and six percent of people who are incarcerated on any given day are, are held in a private prison. In many states, there are no private prisons at all. And in states where there, there are some private prisons, they represent a similarly small fraction of the overall incarcerated population. I think that, you know, if people are concerned about the profit motive in, in the kind of, you know, industrial, mass incarceration industrial complex that they should be, there are a lot of other ways in which comp- for-profit companies are making money off of mass incarceration, which would be much more impactful to attack. For, for example, you know, bail bond companies that make their money off of financing the bonds that keep people locked up in jail away from their families, away from work while they're awaiting their, their day in trial, the for-profit companies that run probation and community supervision programs. These these companies and, and corporations are ubiquitous in every city and state throughout the United States and have a massive impact in terms of the number of people who are both incarcerated and supervised by the criminal legal system. And they're making money hand over fist, often off the back of the very poorest members of our community who are mandated by courts to to you know pay bail or to pay fines and fees in order to to get their freedom. You know, bigger picture in terms of what's happening at the federal level, you know, the First Step Act I think is most notable for the fact that we passed legislation at the federal level that is aimed at actual decarceration, letting people out on the back end of the system in very small numbers as compared to the overall population at the federal level. And the federal um, prison population itself is only about 3% of the number of people who are incarcerated in the entire United States. I think what's encouraging about the first step that is the, is the promise that it catalyzes and creates political space for similar legislation at the state level and maybe, you know, a a second step back at the federal level that's much more meaningful and substantive in terms of the uh, impact that it will have on the federal prison population. But make no mistake about it, if we're going to have real decarceration, that will have to come at the state level and it will have to come by addressing state-level policies and practices and and, uh, incarceration that's being done by the states and the local counties, not by private prisons. Well, and with that in mind, here's the last question for both of you. When voters are making their assessments of DA candidates this year in Pennsylvania, whether it's this month in the primary or in the general election in November, what are the issues you want them to be thinking about? Give me your top three, if it's possible to even narrow it down to three. Terrell, why don't you uh, go ahead and go first? Um, I would say take a look at how much money is actually being spent into uh, the prison system here in Allegheny County and how much money is actually going to Allegheny County Jail. Uh, those people are not being convicted of, of a crime. They're just sitting there being warehoused. Um, when our schools are continuing to suffer, our roads and things like that, we have other money that can be put into substance abuse um, and an and, and education system. So that would be the main thing I would take, have people take a look at, as well as um, why our communities seem to be continue to be targeted um, and for what reason. Uh, what resources are, are in those communities that can actually uh, deter crime and the efforts that have been placed for how long have they worked or, or can we try other measures that, will, that, you know, that can produce some change? And Taylor, what about you? What issues should folks be um, thinking about as they get ready to vote in their DA elections? 
I think my top three might include a DA who's willing to make an explicit and specific commitment to decarceration. I think we're at a point now nationally where there is a lot of momentum and support for prosecutors who adopt a reform agenda and, and reform messaging. And I think a difficulty for voters is knowing how real that is from these politicians, whether they're, they're going to walk the walk or, or if it's all just kind of political rhetoric and talk. And I think, uh, you know, hearing a district attorney say, I acknowledge that prosecutorial practices have been a part of creating mass incarceration, and I'm committing to reducing the number of people who are in jails and prisons by a specific amount is a really good litmus test for knowing that that district attorney candidate is real and they're willing to put themselves out on a line in a way that voters can hold them accountable, not just list off a bunch of kind of, you know, feel good policy promises that may not actually have much of an impact at the end of the day. So I think that that would be one thing I would look for if I were a voter. Number two might be really evaluating what the candidates are doing and saying when it comes to state legislative reform. District attorneys have an enormous amount of power in either helping to champion reforms at the state level that will reduce incarceration or blocking and thwarting legislative changes. And for a very long time, district attorneys have, I think, benefited from being able to say to their local constituents, hey, I'm in favor of reform. But then quietly behind the scenes, they have worked to kill reforms at the at the state legislative level. So I think voters should really be trying to connect the dots between what a candidate is saying they're going to do locally and what they're going to do at the state level. And one, you know, easy measure of that is how closely a district attorney might be aligned with the DA's association in their state. The district attorney's associations in many states, including in Pennsylvania, have often been the single biggest hurdle to legislative reform. And so whether a DA recognizes that as a, as a problem and is willing to distance themselves from their DA's association when the association takes a, a regressive stance on a common sense reform measure, I think is a, is a really good thing to look at. And then third and finally, I, I think I would be concerned if I were a voter about the issue that we talked about earlier um, in this conversation, which is how closely is a candidate going to be in touch and in dialogue with the local community? What, what promises have they made or commitments have they made to have a community advisory board or to be in the neighborhoods or to host town halls after they're elected? I think it's really important for, for me as a voter when I'm thinking about who I elect as a district attorney, I want to know that that person is not just going to you know, take the vote and then go away for four years and I won't hear or see them again until election day, but they're really committed to being in relationship to the community over the course of, of their term. And so that's something I would look very carefully for as well. All right, guys, thanks for your time. I appreciate your insights. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You too. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Terrell Thomas and Taylor Pendergrass for their time and their work on smart justice. Again, be sure to check out our helpful online resources at aclupa.org slash voting rights and knowyourdanpa.org. Also, if you are enjoying the podcast, please rate us on your podcast app of choice. That's a great way for people to learn about the pod and thus to learn the information we share about civil liberties in Pennsylvania. 
That brings episode 24 to a close. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover, your host, writer, and director of this podcast. Until next time, be free.